Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Uh, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you yeah. don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six oh, days. I'm going to need it I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you surely, man? <laughs> It was always going to be a big ask for Aston Villa and Everton to immediately follow a World Cup final, kicking off just an hour after England had lost out to Spain and Sydney. And perhaps England's heartbreak had some sort of profound effect on the Everton players because they played like a group of men who had just discovered the futility of sport. If a proud and defiant team of lionesses gets all the way to the final only to miss out on the ultimate reward. What is the point of it all? Does it really matter who wins our piddly little match at Villa Park? We win 4-0. They win 4-0. Who cares? In the end, it was Aston Villa who won 4-0. Welcome to Monday's Second Captain's Football Podcast. Hey, Ken. <laughs> Owen, how are you doing? Some real gems in here from the Everton defence. <laughs> Goals 2 and oh 4 in particular were just... Works of art. Well, don't don't forget goal three. What happened there? Um, the, goal three wasn't wasn't that when um, Villa had a throw. Yes, Villa had a throw on the on the left, threw it in, and then Keane uh, sort of didn't clear it properly. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and it resulted in a goal. It just basically went straight, almost because, straight through. Yeah, no, let me get to that because the, so so the, for the second goal, Jordan Pickford. I'm working towards something here, Ken. For the second goal, yeah. Jordan Pickford gave away a penalty by nearly taking the head off Ollie Watkins with a left hook that Roberto Duran would have been proud of. And for the final goal, yeah. Ken, Everton substitute John Duran accepted a gift from their own, I should say, Villa Aston Villa substitute. Damn it. Anyway, John yeah. Duran accepted a gift from Everton's throw in. Ashley Young's hands of stone delivered the ball into the path of Duran. Michael Keane said, no mass. And the substitute stuck no it mass. away with his first touch of the game. In fairness to Duran, you would have to say he was hungry like the wolf. That's a Duran-Duran gag, Ken, not oh, a Jesus, Roberto Duran one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it was it was some gift. I mean, to score, to, to concede goals both off an opposing throw-in and then your own throw-in in the space of a few minutes uh, when you're already losing 2-0. 
was phenomenal. Yeah. Over performance by Everton. You know, I, I, you, maybe you had to feel a bit sorry for them. Pickford, obviously, following foul of the change rules for this weekend. Uh, the Onana thing, uh, we all saw it. Uh, but last weekend, the rules were, were, you know, the rules were if you don't get, as long as you don't get near the ball, you're all right. But they obviously had changed the rules again. Uh, and so Pickford, even though he didn't, I mean, it was, it, it, he did try to swipe um it was Watkins, wasn't it? He did try to swipe mm. Watkins' head off, but he seemed to mainly miss. Um, but still, it was a penalty. It was this weekend. It was a penalty that was two 0 after like twenty five minutes. And Everton, I can seldom remember a team that looks as nailed on for relegation after two games as Everton. You know, I mean, oh, they've. You know, when you when you look at what's been happening, I mean, a lot of the the. The the whole summer has been like transfer mania, Saudi Arabia, blah, blah, blah. Everton have bought one player um, who is like a 19-year-old Portuguese striker for 13 million. And they've signed Ashley Young, of course, on a, on a free transfer. But that's all they've done. And this is a team that barely stayed up uh, last season. Everybody else is, you know, spending a lot of money and... They look, they look completely screwed. I mean, I was speaking to um, Jonathan Wilson. We were, we were talking to Jonathan Wilson on the podcast today, but he mentioned that uh, that Dyche has a work, worse record than Lampard now. You know, as um, uh, a worse statistical wow. record as as Everton manager, which is, you know, I mean, Lampard's record was was not good. And then you've you've got also, um, uh, you know, there, there was this whole episode with, with Calvert-Lewin. Calvert-Lewin is, yeah. is, is starting, and according to the note his father put on Facebook, I think, I think it was Facebook, his father, uh, who was at the game, put up a post afterwards where he was um, talking about what happened. So Calvert-Lewin, after a few minutes, gets involved. He, he clashes with uh, Martinez. They're both going for a ball. I didn't think there was really a foul. I think it was kind of a shoulder-to-head situation. But it looks like he's, he stove in his, his cheekbone. He stays on for another 26 minutes, I think it was, um, by which time his, his face has swollen up, you know, like a, like a boxer. I mean, you've been talking about boxers. He, he literally looked like a boxer with a broken face as he walked it's off. one boxer, and he walks Roberto off. Durankin. He walks off to the sounds of, of his, of, of booze um, from his own supporters. So his dad, uh, who was at the, uh, he was at the game, as I said, writes, um, the life of a Premier League footballer dad. The last time I went to Villa Park, he was a 16-year-old sub for Sheffield United. Today, I was there to see him start his first game in two years that he's been fully fit. Which is which in itself is remarkable. I mean, yeah. you know, he's he started games in that period, but apparently this is the first time that he's been like in in one hundred percent condition to start a game. And then a few minutes into the game, he he well, it looks like he breaks his face. Uh, we'll see what the what the outcome. Uh, I haven't heard the Everton announce exactly what the injury was, but it looks nasty. Um, his dad says, I was nervous beyond belief, but I knew I knew how hard he'd worked to recover, so I had faith he'd be okay. To see my son hurt like that brought me to tears again. It always will, no matter what age he is. He's now in hospital getting sorted. I hear the names he gets called by his own, quote, fans, unquote, firsthand. What I will say is this. My son lives a dream daily like he wouldn't believe, and that won't change, regardless of what some numpty and stone island gear shouts. Stay bitter, fellas. Stay bitter. So it's another little setback and a long list of setbacks, but he'll be all right. He always is. So 
that's just, I mean, the dad is obviously reacting to this kind of, it's obviously upsetting for him to hear uh, this kind of abuse. Not sure it's going to help, though. Uh, frankly, you know, in the sense of he's li he's living the dream like you could only, like you wouldn't believe, you know. <laughs> I don't know if that will yeah. necessarily improve the, the attitude of pissed off Everton fans to their uh, once again um, injured striker. No matter how injured he gets, he'll keep living this dream. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's just a bad uh, situation all around. I mean, when when Deitch came in, I was like, yeah, he's going he's going to turn around. I mean, remember the kind of optimism when they beat Arsenal. Um, you know, was it was it his first game or his first home game? Um, but that just that that's been the the only highlight. You know, there hasn't been anything since then, and there's a kind of a, an air of despondency. And well, keeping them like, up at the end of the, at the end of the season was the only other. Well, that was yeah. I mean, they, he did he did joy. keep them up, but it was it was the other teams were falling faster. You know, Leeds Leeds were falling faster. Uh, they simply couldn't match Leeds's um, anvil speed as they plummeted in, into the championship. Everton just couldn't, weren't able to do it. But this this year, they look streamlined. They look heavy. Uh, they look really, they look ready to plunge. And when you see Tarkovsky um, giving his his interview after the game, and the, the only the most optim the reason that he has for optimism is that Aston Villa lost their previous game five one and have beaten us four 0 today. Well, that just goes to show, uh, that, you know, no two games are the same. So we go again next weekend. It's 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 looking bad. So Villa's John Duran was hungry like the wolf. Speaking of which. One of the great mysteries of Irish sport was finally solved on our second captain's radio show on RT this weekend. I For decades, so Irish sports fans had asked the question, who was the man or woman behind the mask of McCool, the Irish wolfhound that served as the national team mascot during the glory days of Jack Charlton? And the flags wave and the crowd cheers and the Irish make their way to the Lansdowne Road Terrace. And as always, on occasions such as this, McCool, the Irish mascot, his as well. McCool was a superstar at the time, guys. So much so that we put out a shout-out on our TV show a few years back to find out who he really was. A call that went unanswered until now, because it turns out McCool was inhabited by a man who would go on to become one of Ireland's greatest playwrights, Enda Walsh. This is bizarre but true. Enda told us on Saturday about some life advice he got around this period from Big Jack himself. So I'm walking down the road and I'm, suddenly I'm thinking, oh God, I'm walking with sort of Jack Charlton here. And then we turn around looking for the others and they're gone. And we're walking, like looking for these people. And Jack goes, Jesus, they're gone. And there's no mobile phones or anything like that. So we went into this pub and the pub was empty and there was a pool table there. And he ordered a couple of pints. He said, do you want a pint? I said, yeah, I'll have a pint of Guinness. And, he, and, and so we had two pints of Guinness and he says, do you play pool? And I said, yeah, not very well, but I'll play pool. He was an excellent pool player. So of course, right. the, like, honestly, within half an hour, you know, there's like the, the place is busy. But before, you know, like people start arriving, I had a half an hour with Jack Charlton around this pool table playing pool, which he completely beat me all the time. But he was asking me, he was sort of saying, so do you want to do this with, for the rest of your life? <laughs> I said, yeah, I mean, please God, you know, you know, I might, you know, change animals, you know, go, become an elephant one day. And, uh, and, and I said, no, you know, I said, I really want to be a writer. I want to write. And he was going, oh, that's great. That's really interesting. And I was going, yeah, I said, I've, you know, I've been writing since I was 14, but that's the thing I want to do, you know, like ultimately, you know, like is write theatre and write film and stuff like that. And he was very sweet and he was like, well, good for you, you know, and all the rest and goodwill and all that type of carry on. And then, you know, the FAI sort of turned up and completely ruined it.
You want to know how much coin he was getting for the McCool gigs, Ken? Um, Let's just say Jack much? Jack would have been happy with him because Jack, you know, Jack was always a, he always knew the value of a pound and he, he wouldn't, yeah. you know. He'd hey, be, he's a money wolf. I mean, that's be A serious, money wolf. Sure. You know, I think that, that has probably emerged yeah. over the years. Well, I'll tell you how much Enda was gobbling up. 450 quid an appearance, Ken. 450 solid <laughs> Irish puns. Yeah, yeah. But well, your reaction is the same as right. Yeah. Sounds like a lot. Yeah. Yeah. 450 quid to, to, to punt about in a wolf suit. More than the players were getting at the time, according to Ray Houghton, when Enda Walsh told him after a match one day. <laughs> Bloody hell, you're getting more than us. <laughs> well, that's, uh, yeah, I, I, some kind of a, a hell of a deal maker. Yeah. Uh, 450 quid. But it was worth Just every penny. What a vast amount of money that was in, in Dublin. Like, oh, no, three, serious cash in the early 90s. Like, you can listen to that interview to our Conan O'Brien chat and all the rest by looking up Second Captain Saturday wherever you get your pods. To hear the rest of our Premier League coverage during the week and hopefully some Ireland medal action at the World Athletics, become a World Service member today at secondcaptains.com for five euro a month plus fat. Ken has been talking Premier League with Mark Critchley and Jonathan Wilson. You'll hear that chat after today's report on sport. 450 quid though. Yeah. I mean, there's lads, there's saturation divers making less than that. Like <laughs> 200 metres down, you know? <laughs> like eight hours of hard labour in pitch darkness at the bottom of the sea. Well, it's, it's a well-paid gig. Just ask Simon, ask our own SpongeBob SquarePants. I don't think he was getting 450 quid a gig to be fair, but he was on decent cash was Simon. In his SpongeBob days, Your kid, I mean, how much was he actually getting? I, w- I would have assumed you 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 weren't getting a lot. I mean, is it is it that highly specialised a job? It's a very well. First of all, the physicality required, both in the theatrical sense, as Enda Walsh only knows only too well, and you know Simon has got some serious acting chops as well, I'm sure, but also the physical bravery required to go to arenas, f- f- filled out arenas knowing that the sole intention of every nine-year-old there is to kick the shit out of you when they get within an arse's roar of you. It happened to McCool. Oh, yeah. It happened to SpongeBob SquarePants. It happened to my friend, Dr. Dunk, at the National Basketball Arena for many years. It happens to them all, Ken. So I think they should be getting paid more. I This is my call out now. I know we're living in straightened times. I know it's difficult for people. But I think mascots should be more highly prized and should get paid no more money. absolutely I, mean, I don't i don't mean to side with the bosses against the mascots <laughs> you know if, if, if you can get <clears throat> if they can get 450 quid for standing there uh, in a wolf suit uh watching a football match for free then listen uh, opal were given more power if they were getting plenty of money everyone was everyone was partying back then ken except the players who were only getting a couple hundred quid per appearance but all the associated parties were partying so what else was happening over there? Well, the main thing, I guess, was happening this weekend was the Women's World Cup final. Uh, Spain won, England nil. The uh, Brave Lionesses didn't quite manage to bring home the gold. They did bring home the, the golden gloves uh, for Mary Earps. Uh, silver medals. Spain, led by uh, their <laughs> their master, maestro coach, Jorge Vilda. Beloved by all. Of it really is an, an amazing story. I mean, you, you do have to wonder just how frighteningly good Spain could have been if they weren't without four of their best players. And, you know, maybe more than that. Because what happened was 15 of them signed this email saying, or sent sent this email saying, we're not happy with how things are going here. And this, is, this dates back to last September. Uh, they had lost to England, actually, in the... Uh, in the Euros 
Apparently this tournament hadn't been enjoyed by a lot of the players uh, and they complained uh, to the Federation saying, look, we, you know, we've, look, we talked about this last week, but, you know, long story short, they complained uh, and it was clear that that their the main source uh, or the common factor of their complaints was the coach, Jorge Villa, who they didn't think was any good. Uh, but the Federation, uh, led, of course, by President Luis Rubiales, who we saw um uh, all over the celebrations mm. uh, at the game at the game yesterday, uh, stoutly defended their uh, their man uh, Jorge Vilda and said, "You players are all going to have to apologize. You know, you know, no, no, if if you want to exile yourself from national team duty, that's fine. We'll just keep going uh, with other players, uh, players who understand what it means to play for Spain, and you you uh, players have." got ideas above your station if you think you can force our hand in terms of getting rid of coaches and so on. And so eventually, 11 of the 15 ended up saying, okay, um, you know, if you're, if you're going to, if you're going to be like this, then right, we do want to be considered for selection again. Only three of them ended up getting into the World Cup squad, including Aitana Bonmati, who was the golden ball, the best player of the tournament. Um, four of them stuck it out. They said, no, um, we're not coming back to play with this guy and run for the Federation. And, well, they end up missing out on becoming world champions, which Jorge Vilda is. Nobody could ever take it away from him. Nobody could ever erase his face from the celebrations. I saw Jonathan Liu tweeting a video of the, uh, Jonathan Liu who was at the game covering for the Guardian, tweeting video of, 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 of the players dancing, you know, in a huddle. And everyone just has their backs turned and this guy who's dancing in the middle of them. So right to the end, there's this kind of snubbing going on. Um, but who cares? None of that goes in the history books. Uh, all that goes there is gold medal for Jorge Vilda. Uh, he's a world champion. Um, and vindication, vindication for the great president of the Spanish FA, Luis Rubiales, who enjoyed the moment so much that he has dominated all of the coverage uh, that's arising out of the Women's World Cup final. It's all been about this guy. Here he is grabbing his balls in celebration in the, uh, in the stands. He's, he's like doing a Michael Jackson uh, groin grab hip thrust. Here he what? is. What? I missed grabbing- that. I missed that one. Oh yeah, 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 no. He was up in the. Uh, he, this is when he's up, uh, you know, in the sort of dignitary row. You know, it's maybe it's like he's saluting the the final whistle or something. He's not on the pitch at this point, but he's he's kind of yeah, you know, dancing, prancing like like uh, you may remember Emmanuel Macron in in Moscow in 2018. He was really uh, giving it a lot. He was he was acting the part. I mean, he he was basically the McCool of the French team, except that he was wearing a little Macron. <laughs> suit and not a not an actual wolf costume um rubiales rubiales was doing the same thing uh for spain and uh you know just letting everyone know that he was the mastermind uh whose decisions these these cojones these cojones which i grab it's this that won the world cup for spain these uh, golden balls uh, because if it wasn't for these big balls uh, making those important decisions, I might have sacked this mastermind, uh, this other, the other mastermind, Jorge Vilda, and replaced him with another coach, and we wouldn't all be here as world champions. So, really, this Women's World Cup triumph is all about these. Uh, you know, it seemed to be. I mean, maybe I'm reading too much into the gesture. But then he makes his way down to the medal, this unbearably protracted medal ceremony that they do. Um, 
you know, uh, which they they uh, they did it obviously in in Qatar. <clears throat> I don't remember if they did it in Russia. I don't think it was quite as big a deal there. The, the only thing I remember about the Russian final was that uh, there was an enormous uh, cloudburst rainstorm uh, just as yeah. they were doing the the medals and the the main interest out there was just who was going to get the umbrella, and it was obviously. Um, the Russian president, he was given the umbrella while the Croatian uh, prime minister or president, I'm not sure, stood there getting drenched. Um, yes, but, yeah. you know, look, it was his it was his gig. Uh, they they do this really long medal ceremony where they give out all the awards. It was Paraluelo for best young player, Mary Earps for best goalkeeper, Bomadi, as I mentioned, for um, best player, and then the silver medals, and then the gold medals. And this is where Rubiales really came into his own. I, I was watching it at the time, um, you know, the players were coming by and he was kind of, you know, embracing them and, and kissing them on the uh, on the cheek. And I kind of thought, yeah, okay, well, it's, it's Spain, you know, what are you going to do? But I was watching to see what he did with the coach. He also kissed the coach, to be fair, on the cheek. But I missed the one where he kissed. He grabs uh, Jenny Hermoso, who had missed the penalty, um, missed the Spain penalty of the game, allowing Mary Earps her great moment of of glory and defiance grabs her by both sides of the head and like just plants a kiss full in her mouth you know <laughs> just like what is that also a spanish thing or uh, you know it seems a bit seems a bit much uh there's a video then of her in the dressing room uh where she's like happy in the dressing room she's like eating a brownie or something and you know she's like looking at messages coming in on her phone and uh then they sort of start winding her up about this moment you know she's having she's kind of having an exchange with someone off screen saying yeah i didn't like it though i didn't enjoy it and uh and then 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 they're like oh yeah what else did you know you know she's like well what, you know what could i do what could i do was basically her kind of take on it no she, she it wasn't yeah. like she was you know appearing to be angry or whatever she's just won the world cup she's happy um but uh it was that kind of a well yeah she seemed as surprised as anyone by this i mean i saw marca weirdly um obviously the, the probably the biggest spanish sports outlet were covering this story because obviously it had become a become a thing and they were like, oh, it's it's like um, they're reenacting, uh, Rubiales reenacts Iker Casillas' famous uh, kiss with Sarah Carbonero, with Jenny Hermoso. Sarah Carbonero was the Spanish journalist who at the time was, at the time when Spain won the World Cup in 2010 in Johannesburg, was, was um, going out with Iker Casillas and famously in the kind of uh, trophy celebrations after winning the World Cup, he kissed her on TV. Um, and you know, it was so, he, like, so he kissed his girlfriend, is, and this is what's being compared to this. Slightly different dynamics to play there, lads. They went on to get married. They have since divorced, sadly. Uh, but you know, they were at the time in a relationship. Unlike uh, it hardly needs to be pointed out. Uh, Rubiales and Hermoso. I see. I see. I see, I see a, yeah. Oh, so what I was going to say. Yeah, there was just a statement that came out a, a while afterwards via the Spanish yeah. FA and then she it's all very much oh no it was totally spontaneous mutual gesture because of our immense joy we have a great relationship his behaviour has been outstanding it was a natural gesture of affection and gratitude all the kind kinds of stuff you should say yeah. you know you know if you want if you want to um, make this into tr try to lessen the impact of the story yeah I mean I th you know whatever about it like th this is the statement that, that is put out in the name of Hermosa by the by the FA so great but like 
when you look at it in, in the context of the overall situation over the last year, where the players were complaining about conditions in the, um, in the camp, or not all of the players, for none of the Real Madrid players, for example. When it was a Real Madrid player, Olga Carmona, who scored the winning goal. And you have seen, I'm sure, the news that, that actually came out uh, last night, um, a couple of hours or, or a, little, a little while after the game, that Olga Carmona's father had actually died before the game. Um, but her family had made the decision not to tell her until yeah. afterwards. Um, and so the day that she wins the World Cup for her country, scoring the winning goal in the final, is also the day uh, that she's always going to remember as the day that her father died, yeah, which yeah. is a real personal, um, a real personal tragedy for her. Um, but she was not obviously one of the players who had signed. I, I saw that her comments after the game about the coach were very complimentary, talking about the federation, they were very complimentary. So, you know, it's not as everybody necessarily um, agreed. Some people, I suppose, benefited out of this um, situation. You know, places were suddenly available in the squad and, you know, football being what it is, there were other players who were, who were ready to come in. But the fact is that those players had uh, complained about the the way that things were being run, they had claimed that this was adversely affecting their uh, mental health, including Hermoso, actually. Um, the uh, Hermoso, the, the, the player who was uh, kissed by, um, Rubiales. by Rubiales, she, I mean, she's the top scorer in the history of Spain's national team. He now plays for Pachuca in Mexico, but had been... I think is also the top scorer for Barcelona, you know, so it was a pretty major figure uh, in Spanish women's football, had not signed the email, but did put out like a long, like a four screen grab statement around the same time um, where she was, she was basically saying, I, I agree with this, although she's not necessarily, she's not joining a protest because I guess she wants to, she, she sort of doesn't want to go as far as say, I'm withdrawing myself from contention. But she was saying, she said, I have to admit in recent years, I've also had very tough moments of suffering before and after national team camps, an endless number of situations that left me unable to recognize myself and in turn made me feel immense loneliness within the national team. You know, so she, this is one of the players who didn't join the protest, but that's what she, you know, and she's the one who's getting, uh, who's getting kissed at the end by, by Rubiales, who obviously is the guy whose decision was, hang on, you know, this is all just a bunch of bunch of nonsense. We're not going to, um, you know, we, you know, the players are, are complaining about this, but we we've got to stand up to this nonsense. That was his yeah. view. So it's just in that in that context. I don't know. The whole thing is um, so many bizarre dynamics going on there. Can I just ask you? You mentioned Mary Earps there and her defiance. You had a nice line in her in the Irish Times. Mary Earps, who celebrated her second half penalty save by roaring "fuck off" at the world in general, <laughs> embodied everything English yeah. football holds most precious for England. These displays of warrior spirit are still what the game is all about, but it wasn't well, quite like good enough last night or yesterday morning. That's what that's ultimately what football is. I mean, it's you know, it's all about uh, that's that's what it's all about. You know, that's why that's why everyone's doing this. Uh, I mean, it was a huge moment in the game, and at that point, I thought England are going to come back. England are going to equalize. Um, you know, that was kind of that was that was the way that it felt because Spain had had been basically the better team throughout, like England were struggling, you know, we, we, um, Serena Vigman, we, we had talked about it on Thursday 
whether she was going to put Lauren James back in and she decided that she wasn't, but then at half time put her back in. So that was going, that was almost like you kind of feel like she probably wanted to pick Lauren James, but felt like she couldn't because of what James had done earlier in the tournament. And it just, you, you can't start her in those circumstances, but then clearly felt we need her. Um, and things weren't really going too, too well for England when Spain got the penalty, which was a penalty, it took forever to award for some reason. Um, he felt, okay, uh, game over. So Earps um, saves, actually catches the penalty, possibly having come off the line. I mean, it sort of looked like she did. I but they, so, yeah. They, yeah. I mean, the, the rule is that you have to have one foot basically on or level with the goal line. So maybe her her kind of the 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 back foot was still there, but it looked a bit a bit marginal. But anyway, they didn't make them they didn't make them retake. It's a stupid rule anyway. The goalkeeper should be allowed to do whatever they want um, in that situation. I think anything you know short of actually slide tackling the penalty taker, I think should be fine. Um, and then she jumps up, and and you feel then okay, um, they have a real chance here. But in the end, I think Spain were just too good. Like they could they could never really. They could never really put them under kind of controlled or sustained pressure. Spain just too slippery, just um, too too hard to pin down. And this is the point that the, the whole idea of the warrior spirit versus the the a very different embodiment of what football. Because you say, oh, everyone thinks that's about the warrior. It's about this, but obviously they don't think that in Spain. They've got a very defined way of playing, and yeah. there there was a clearly defined football ideological difference between these two countries which you don't often see at certainly at men's world cups anymore there's a, a general complaint that every, every team plays kind of the same now everyone does the same yeah that was that, that was the kind of i read a few different uh, people arguing that you know jorge valdano certainly did juan malillo as we mentioned recently um you know all the all the coaches have learned the same stuff all the academies you go to a training session in south africa it's the same as one you know in eastern europe it's it's you know it used to, these used to be different worlds that didn't really intersect and the world cup is where you saw them coming together whereas that's not really the case anymore but but in, in there, there were moments in that women's world cup final where you could see where you could see that i mean it's not as though spain have always been like this you know spain used to be at least the men's team their nickname is you know la furia roca the red fury because it was all about like machismo and screaming in your face and you know being uh, that that was that was sort of their thing it didn't work for them for years you know for, for years it's it, it may be hard to remember this but spain were like the laughing stock of the world cup it was like how can the team with so many good players fail so badly every single time you know they were like a super england you know it was like <laughs> england but they've never actually won the world cup that was kind of what spain were like um and obviously that's completely transformed and the reason that they've done it is well, although it, it does seem to be a general thing with Spanish sport I mean you look at you look at your man like Alcaraz I mean they just seem to be brilliant at everything you know they've just got like a, a highly developed culture across so many different sports everybody's just got really great technique um uh you know but it but the gap I think in in uh, particularly in the women's world cup was was insurmountable really for their opponents. I mean, you've seen it in the men's world cup that this, that their style has failed, you know, it's stopped working. Um, or they're trying to kind of find a new balance between passing possession and actually scoring goals. You know, they, you need to do both. And there've, there've been some really comical games, which we've discussed at length where Spain have just 
you know, what are you, what are you doing, lads? The goal is over there, sort of thing. You know, the, the, <laughs> this has been. A, but in the in the women's World Cup, um, no one could really get close to them, apart from Japan, who obviously beat them four <laughs> nil. But but like. <laughs> I, I, Japan beating them 4-0 was obviously phenomenal, but it's not really a template that anyone can use because it's like, all you need to do to beat Spain is simply score all your chances. And if you do that, you will win. But that's a template that you can use for you know, any team that scores all of its chances in a game is, is probably going to win that game. I mean, it's the nature of football. And that's that's what happened. It was a freak. It was a freak result between Japan and Spain. But yeah, they have... Uh, they have... Um, finally done it in in women's football as well and they did it in a way which is uh, very recognizably their own there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care plush care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe fda approved weight loss medications like wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Y'all, I'm getting ready to put y'all up on something, man. Yo, put some respect. Put some respect on my name. I've won five, five World Cups. It's personal between me and I'm going to give you some serious arm, you big stiff idiot. Okay, all right. Who are the people who are going to get together and go, ooh? Like, you know what I mean? Like, yo. Are Kante and Rudiger going to be like, ooh? As for the Quetta and Jorginho, like, ooh. Little pack of alpha dogs, like, ooh. Is Mason Mount the senior man? Ooh. Who have we got here? You know, he thinks he's he thinks he's the dogs. He thinks he's all that. We're live on Channel Five. All right, going one more. Also, you're gonna need ten plumbers to do you when I've got to finish with you. Also, you are getting it. Well, we're joined to talk about the weekend's football by Jonathan Wilson. How are you, Jonathan? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? And also by Mark Critchley. You're very welcome, Mark. Hey, Ken. How's it going? Yeah, pretty good. Um, I think we should start really with uh, with uh, what was happening yesterday afternoon at the London Stadium. Chelsea, uh, the lavishly funded Chelsea, seemed, uh, seemed to be struggling to achieve liftoff under Mitzio Pochettino. Dr. Wilson, what do you diagnose? I mean, the thing is, if you, if you just sort of watch that game in isolation... And, and the previous 15 matches hadn't happened, you'd think, well, they may be a bit unlucky there. The last half hour of the first half, they're much a better side. They missed the penalty. They had a load of chances. They got a really nice equaliser. And then, yeah, second half, they sort of ran aground a bit and, and, and sort of they seemed to be worse affected by the red card than West Ham were. But you, you can't look at it in isolation. It's, it's one win in 16 now. And you know, when... What, 950 million pounds, 970 million pounds, whatever it is, has been spent on that squad. 
yeah, they, they, they've made it worse. But, yeah, the most extraordinary expenditure in football history to, to take a team that two years ago won the Champions League and of that 23-man squad uh, that, that played in that final, only two were in the squad yesterday. Um, and yeah, they've got loads of really talented young players, but that doesn't make a team. You start it's, also, it's also not as though, just on that point about that squad, it's not as though these players had all kind of done what, what Kante has done. I mean, Kante obviously was, was maybe past his best. He was getting injured a lot. But when you look at it, like um, the players that they've sold, Havertz has gone to Arsenal, Mount has gone to Manchester United, Kovacic has gone to Manchester City. Like these are part, the, these players have all gone to, to better teams than Chelsea currently are. It's not like they're they just getting rid of Deadwood. Yeah, and it's, it's not like, I mean, this sort of 2012 Chelsea team that won the Champions League. There was a lot of aging players. There. That was sort of a you know a last throw of the dice. Whereas that, that side two years ago, yeah, it sort of felt like the beginning of something for Chelsea. There's players starting to come through the academy. Uh, so, you know, people like Hudson, the Doy, Mount. Um, and, and that's now just gone. You know, those people coming to the academy have a useful way of offsetting um, the, you know, the, the amortized value of, of the players they're signing now. Um, but you, you start to look at people like, I mean, I think so the worst thing you can feel about a player is pity. And when Mudrick attempted that volley, I don't know, was it 10 minutes ago, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, um, I mean, an yeah. amazing moment he, because he, 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 had, he had already fallen over uh, in a when presented with a, a decent chance a few minutes earlier, and then this was this was even worse. Yeah, so you know, it, it comes from towards the back of the box. It's not an easy chance by any means, but he's in space. The ball's dropping. Actually, his volleys go. It's not that difficult. The ball's not coming quickly. It's nicely sort of in his arc. Uh, it's it's he's got time to get over the top of it to hit, to, to, to hit sort of a you know a, a waist high or sort of upper thigh high volley and he does this weird horrible little jabby side foot which was it was never the right option it was the option you take if you have no confidence at all and you think oh I'll just try and guide that somewhere near the goal and of course even that goes hideously wrong so I, I've sort of I've just come to feel sorry for him there's, there's a, a kid who costs what 85 million pounds he'd only ever played 33 league games in Ukraine he suddenly thrust into the most expensive squad in history, and yeah, you know, he. We'd seen him that, that when he has space to run into, he's good. You know, we, those performances in the Champions League against Leipzig, against Celtic, there's clearly something there. But had we seen that he could do it against a, a team that sits deep against. Yeah, you know, plays a low block against him, as he will face most of the time against Chelsea. I don't think we had. And now you just look at somebody who who seems to have lost all faith in, in his ability. And so he's a player who's, who's it appears at the minute is in the process of being destroyed by the by the Bowley experiment, and, and that's just really sad on on every level. Yeah, I mean, Mark, you've spent um, a lot of time uh, lately covering Manchester City. I wonder. Do you have any impression of what they, of what City think about the uh, Bowley experiment? You know, in in terms of Bowley um, and Spekulada Bali and you know whoever else is sort of calling the shots at Chelsea, uh, they obviously think that football has has kind of got is, is blinkered in its way of looking at things, and actually there's a there's a more ambitious. A more imaginative way to approach football finance, which uh, other teams have lacked the courage to embrace. Uh, I mean, if you look at a team like Man City, obviously they've had, you know, a lot of people would say they've had all the financial advantages a, a club can have, but even they haven't tried something um, 
as risky, let's say, as what Todd, what Todd Bowley is doing. Do you have any idea of how uh, they view what's been happening there? You know, they they obviously have been criticised a lot uh, themselves, the, the charges, and, you know, we all we all know the, the story there. But this uh, Chelsea team's come along and, like, blown away all their spending records, like in successive windows. Um are they are they worried about this, or or would you say their their mood is something closer to amusement? What what's their take? Um, well, it's it's hard. It, it is unquestionably hilarious when a team spends this much money and is still losing matches. Um, so I'm sure that they're taking some amusement out of it. But uh, no, Guardiola was asked about. Um, he wasn't even asked about Chelsea directly on Friday in in his pre-match before Newcastle. He was asked just whether this had been a particularly difficult transfer window for them because. Unusually for City, you know, there's quite a lot of players are leaving or have wanted to leave, and and they've not been too quick in getting in getting replacements in. But he, he immediately directed the answer towards Chelsea and said, you, you know, it's it's difficult, but it's not difficult if you're Chelsea, and and Chelsea clearly can spend whatever money they like, throw whatever money they want to throw at, at targets and uh, and get them over the line. And you know that then went into a wider discussion on on. Um, uh, yeah, I think Guardiola sees it as a level of hypocrisy, if you like. He said that he would be killed um, if if City were spending that level of money. Now, look, I think, you know, you mentioned there everything about City's finances and all, all the scrutiny that's been on them um, over the past few years and particularly in relation to FFP. Um, City have never really... <laughs> presented it as though they aren't trying to stick within the rules right you know they've always insisted that they have stick, stuck within the rules and when they've been uh, pulled up on FFP matters it's been of a different nature to this Chelsea stuff it's been more about I suppose dishonesty um, rather than just actually not sticking within the limits and not even apparently trying to and I think that's look from the outside looking in I don't cover the club closely but I think Having, I did a piece recently on on United's FFP situation, and it took about a week to to get my head around all the different rules, whether it's Premier League UEFA for profit and sustainability, etc. The new ones that are coming in in European competition as well. I I actually came to the conclusion after a while that look, if you really wanted to do what Todd Bowley's doing, you would just do it. Like the the the. The um, the punishments that are in place, the, the deterrents aren't particularly strong. Um, in the Premier League, I think it's only once you spend over 105 million over over uh, the the monitoring period that um, points deductions and more serious punishments actually come into play. Uh, and we've seen with UEFA over the years, whether it's Paris Saint Germain, Juventus, um, City themselves, about 10 years ago, when you breach FFP. Um, you you know it's it's a case of fines rather than rather than bans. You know when City were banned, that was again it was more about concealment and and dishonesty rather than rather than spending over the limit. So, look, um, you know Jonathan started this little segment up by saying you can't really take it in isolation, but I almost think there's an argument that you can take it in isolation with Chelsea because it's a completely different team. You know, so so yeah, it's it's funny to look back on the amount of games lost over the last couple of seasons, but. They've changed almost absolutely everything there. They've put a young team in place. They've taken this bet that they'll be able to get away with it under the restrictions. Or or, or rather, you, you seem to be suggesting that 
of course, they're not going to get away with it under the restrictions, but they just have to pay a fine, which is kind of part of the cost of it's just incorporated into the cost of doing business. Well, yeah, yeah. If it's, as long as as long as they can keep it under that 105 million limit for the Premier League, um, yeah, then they they won't be more serious. Uh, punishments than them having to have. Well, the, I think it's in that case the Premier League board steps in and and applies spending controls. And look, if you've already built the squad, the young squad that is full of the most talented players on the market available, then maybe you think you can get around that, and maybe that's the strategy. Um, but again, that's from the outside looking in. But look, <laughs> I I don't think it's going to work. I think there's a lot of different questions that you can ask of it. Um, what if those players aren't successful? They're tied down to long contracts. Do they become easy to shift? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But it's a different way of doing things, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if if City and a few other clubs are are slightly worried about uh, how Chelsea have managed to go about it, and how actually they could still be something of a force in over the next few years. Although you know, you say the the most talented players on the market, and I, I sometimes wonder. I mean, I was looking, at, I was looking at the teams before kickoff yesterday, the West Ham and Chelsea teams. And I thought West Ham have a West Ham have a better team on the field here. You know, I'm looking, I'm looking at these West Ham players. You know, it's not as though, you know, some of these guys are going to go for huge transfer fees. They're a bit older, um, you know, then maybe they don't have as much potential as some of these Chelsea players, you know, from a football accountancy point of view. But like for winning an actual game, I didn't really think, whoa, Chelsea definitely have the, have the edge and quality here, Jonathan. I mean, it, it, you know, it seemed... What what I mean is that although although Marcus says has said these are the most talented players on the market, I'm not convinced that they are. I, I mean that's the problem when you sign potential. Um, I, and you know, I think I think it's very easy to get sort of uh, seduced by the idea that the players have a have a sort of set ability or set value. Um, and actually, yeah, you know, there are obvious exceptions, you know, who are better than the rest. But actually, there's a huge mass of players who are pretty good. Uh, and then whether they perform outstandingly is often to do with the, the, the system they're in, with with sort of the environment they're in, whether they feel comfortable. And that's one of the huge problems Chelsea have got. That um, I mean, to take the Mudrick example, uh, if, if he was a young player coming into a, a sort of more normal team, he would have players age 25, 28, 30, 32, 34, in that squad, who he could talk to, he could learn from, who could sort of say, "Oh, I remember when this happened to me." Uh, he'd have a you know a settled structure to work within. I think his role will be much clearer, and, and that it must be it must be an easier circumstance to settle in. Whereas it feels like I don't know, it's it's it's, it's sort of a, a team of kids from a lower sixth who kind of you know they, they they're sort of wild. They don't have any. I mean, I guess they've got. Poor old Thiago Silva, who he must feel incredibly old when he looks around. And I think is, is Raheem Sterling the second oldest player on that side at twenty seven? Uh, I'm pretty maybe? sure that he was. Uh, he he was yesterday for sure. Yeah, I thought he had. A, I thought he had a really good game actually. Sterling, it's the best I've seen him play in years. Yeah. That was one of the one of the bright points I'd say for for, for Chelsea. Absolutely, um, it's really hard for these for a young player to develop if all the players around him. Who's he learning from? And yeah, there is something very exciting about youth, and, and they yeah they don't have a fear, and, and experience hasn't made them sort of old and cynical. But there's a, there's a reason why, you know, experience a bit of experience helps. You want that blend, and um, yeah, Thiago Silva's dragging up the average age quite a lot. But I, don't, I just don't think one player, particularly one player who every now and again is starting to look a bit cumbersome, a bit slow, he can be exposed. 
I mean, you think of the Brighton game away last season when, when I sort of thought, well, I'm not sure he can play in a four anymore. Well, he has played in a four and he's, you know, he's done fine. But I think there is the potential to expose him. Um, and, and you know, his range of potential partners, um, I mean, Dezassi had a pretty poor game yesterday. I thought he was patchy against Liverpool. I'm not 100% convinced by him, but you get beyond him and you have... Um, uh, uh, Badia Shield, who often seems injured, Fafana, who often seems injured. But I think that's another problem they've got. Uh, Reese James and Fafana are often injured. Now, yeah, Chuck, Ch- uh, Kearney Chuck will make a good injured as well yesterday. Yeah. But I mean, I think with James and Fafana, um, and, and look, I, I'm not going to pretend in any way to be an expert in this, but I have talked to people who, who deal in um, physiognomy of players. And one of the things that comes up again and again, when I sort of, you know, when you talk on physiognomy, is that not their faces? You know, the, does, does Reese, yeah, I think, is it not Reese James has got a shifty look? I'm not sure he's going to be fit for more than 20 games a season. They're, 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 they're body shape, body type. Okay. Um, yeah, the, the bio, biomechanics, biomechanics of how they play. Is um, and the thing that comes up again and again with, you know, with the two of them, I mean, and other players who, who, who often get knee, knee, knee injuries and thigh injuries, is that apparently they don't articulate their femurs sufficiently. And that means a lot of pressure goes on the inside of the knee, which then either the knee buckles or the thigh is taking so much strain to, to counter that, that the thigh goes. Now, as I, again, look, I don't pretend to understand that. I'm saying what other people have told me. But the fact they do keep, keep on getting injured, maybe there is something in that. I don't know. Yeah. Now, it reminds me a bit of Ferguson talking about uh, Jordan Henderson's gait. Uh, running, running from the knee. Actually, speaking of uh, Alex Ferguson, he was he appeared on TV to offer the at the time uh, strange sounding opinion, but actually vindicated by events. Sounds like maybe Alex Ferguson knows a thing or two because he um, his opinion on last weekend was that Newcastle had basically been pretty lucky against Aston Villa, who actually had played well, and Newcastle just happened to score a lot of goals. Mark, you were there to see. Newcastle. Uh, my opinion watching Newcastle against Villa was, my God, they're going to win the league. It's happening. Um, <laughs> didn't look like that on uh, on Saturday where, where City, a depleted City, um, were able to control them pretty easily. Well, yeah, I think, look, performance really was all about Manchester City. I think um, that was the one the, they tend to start slow um, and, and Guardiola, again, leading up to it, had been quite cautious really about this game he'd, he'd been asking a lot from the fans um, which is always a, a bit of a canary in the coal mine in terms of you know that he's uh, he's worried about something that's coming up um, there's obviously injuries to De Bruyne um, uh, they were missing Bernardo missing John Stones um, but just the level of control that they exerted over the performance despite all these problems against a side like Newcastle who again looked really impressive last week but are still probably lacking that certain something to go away to teams like City and, and and really compete because it wasn't there really wasn't much of a competition. I mean, second half there was a couple of breakaways, um, but again, like Guardiola is just look. We know him by we know him well enough by now over the years. I think he's just become the like best problem solver, if you like um, that that there is uh, that we've known perhaps and you know City at the moment again like I said it's been a summer where you've seen players leave perhaps not expectedly Gundogan went um, that was that was the end of the contract so we knew it was coming but City would rather have not lost him uh, Mares is gone 
obviously those injuries that I mentioned. Um, it looks like Laporte's finalising his deal to Saudi Arabia soon, flying out today. Cancelo will probably leave this week. You're talking about a squad that is starting to look particularly thin. I think if you looked at the bench on Saturday, there was barely any. Um, like I think six of the nine were under 22 years old and have only had a real handful of starts between them. So the Again, um, it feels it, it feels daft to say because we're talking about Manchester City and we know the resources that are at that club. But Guardiola tends to make things hard for himself. They've spent like five years without left back, and yet um, no subs, no subs as well, which was that whole exchange he had with the yeah with yeah the no fan. no substitutions. I saw that it was right in front of me, and I wondered what that was about. I wondered if it might be about that. Um, turns out it was. Yeah, like he, he if he sees a game and he feels that a game is playing within the rhythm that he wants and it isn't um and you know he he sets players out on a pitch to do a particular job and do a particular plan and if he doesn't feel like he needs to change that i thought city were flagging towards the end of the second half as you'd expect after they'd been in athens um on wednesday night and they only got back thursday didn't have the chance to train friday um but they still do that to a team like newcastle again like and i should mention foden as well who um oh, he was brilliant yeah well i think for like without De Bruyne, a long time people have been saying, "When's he going to get the opportunity to play centrally?" Pep's always said that he doesn't have really the defensive now to play there. Um, but this, the way you get around that really is by playing him wide right and just having him cut in and having Kyle Walker just dominate that whole right hand side, and that's that's what they did effectively. And I think it was it was the performance really that. Uh, like people have been waiting for from Foden for a long, long time, um, and might be his route back into this. Well, back into the team, um, given how Littley was, um, Littley played during the run-in for the treble last season, uh, and yeah, it was one of his best performances in a while. So um, I think that will be the dynamic moving forward without De Bruyne. Foden on the right, and then Alvarez in the middle. I think so, and then obviously with Walker's pace, he can cover most of the right-hand side. But but, but Bernardo Silva is going to play when he's available, right? So I mean, where does he fit in? Probably, well, I mean, which in which of those positions? I mean, he, you can put him anywhere, I guess. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> see. As soon as you start to you throw one more player into the mix, suddenly you've got headaches and problems, and that's why City, for as much as we say they've got a thin squad and like the depth isn't quite there. Um, it's it's a it's a depth that's a, a, a qualitative depth rather than a quantitative depth, right? So there's not a lot of bodies around, but when you move one player in, it's it's usually no downgrade. So um, they do want somebody though, don't they? I mean, because because they they were really having the links with Pakistan, and and probably they're lucky they didn't manage to sign him um, before the news emerged about his betting and so on. Um, but the fact that they were looking at a buying player for seventy or eighty million pounds does suggest they think, okay, we we need to we need to add somebody. And if they've got the, if they've got that kind of money to spend on a player, then do you think there's going to be someone else arriving in the next couple of weeks? Um, I would think that look, um, there's kind of an acceptance that perhaps not every player that's left this summer is going to be directly replaced. Certainly at the level of quality that um, that they were when they left, um, Pakita would have been. A, a kind of Gundogan replacement, I guess you would say, like for like. Um, but there's also Mares, and I think the one that is moving closest at the minute is uh, the Rens, Rens, Rens winger, uh, Jeremy Doku. So um, I, I would, I would look. I, I think the reinforcements will come, perhaps not in both of those positions. Um, I think with Pakistan City, the, the level of price that was being discussed, I think, shows how much. Uh, they thought of him 
Um, but at the same time, I think they had other options to go elsewhere as well. And some of those names might start to uh, drip out over the next next few days and weeks, basically. But um, so they were quite happy to move away quite quickly once once um, the details that emerged last week um, emerged about the the FA investigation. Um, but yeah, no, I'd, I'd expect I'd expect one or two more bodies. But even then, I think you're still looking at a squad that is maybe slightly lighter than Guardiola has been used to in the past and is probably going to demand slightly more out of him um, than, than it has in the past as well, yeah. Jonathan, you were at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Is it still called that, incidentally? They haven't they haven't thought of a new name for it yet. Um, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium to see uh, Ange Postacoglu's first Premier League win as Spurs manager. Now, we will talk about United, who are obviously vying with Chelsea for the crisis club mantle in the, in the first couple of weeks. But uh, how impressed were you with this um, transformation of Tottenham? Are you seeing uh, signs of uh, nascent uh, Ange ball? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I was actually I was much more impressed by than I was expecting to be, and I was very impressed by him. It's, it's really odd to have somebody coming to a press conference and just talking like a normal bloke. Um, you know, he sort of said, "Well, you know, we're not going to be a complete product after six weeks, but you want to see sprouts." I think we did see it, and you sort of. Oh, yeah, that, that is actually just what happened. So they've obviously got a problem with no Kane. I don't think Richarlison really suits that central role. Uh, you know, I think he touched the ball 28 times in the game. He, he went off after, I think, 60, 60-odd minutes, 68, 69 minutes. Uh, and of those 28 touches, eight of them were giving the ball away. I, I, I'm not even sure he managed to shot out of the 28. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a problem there. But I thought the middle of midfield, uh, Basuma and Saar were excellent. Madison in front of them was very, very good as well. Um, and I think where you have to give Postacoglu a lot of credit is that United were the better side, say, the first sort of 30, 35 minutes. Tottenham did start to come into it that last 10 minutes of the, of the first half. It hit the woodwork twice. But then from half-time onwards, Tottenham, apart from sort of a, a couple of minutes around the hour mark, were totally in control. And then just as they looked like they might be starting to wobble, he made a couple of substitutions, shut down the left-hand side, and United just suddenly didn't have anything. And then those two subs he brought in on, brought, brought on on the left side, um, Perisic and um, uh, Davis combined to to get the second. So I, I think it's not just that they won. It's not just that they played much more attacking football than they have been recently. It's not just a sort of sense of, of fun. It was that you could see things that Postacoglu had done that it, that it improved him in the course of the game. Yeah, you talk about Richardson there. He's an interesting player. Um, the thing that really struck me watching him in that game was he has no um, striker's instinct in terms of he he always seems to be trying to barrel towards the ball as quickly as possible, as opposed to uh, he doesn't. It's like he hasn't figured out how to lurk. You know what I mean? So, <laughs> so there was there was that moment when um, uh, who hit the crossbar uh, was it? Uh, Pedro Poro hit the bar. Yeah, Poro, Poro hit the bar, and then the ball came out, and it was crossed in from the right. It deflected off, uh, I think, one of the Luke United Shaw. players. Yeah, it was, the, it was Sars crossed from the right, hit, hit Luke Shaw, and then hit the post. Yeah, yeah and, and if you see Richarlison there, right, Richarlison is actually in a great position to score off a rebound here, but he can't because he's he's already sort of diving towards the ball, and this also happened in the second half. And I just thought, wow, like, I wonder could he kind of be... be taught how to do this like a lot of the time it's about like kind of waiting until the last second to, to really make your move you know I know I know this that there's the elements of you have to anticipate and so on and this is a whole other thing but like I see for instance someone like um, Jota the Liverpool player um, 
Richarlison is, is like twice the athlete Jota is and like probably has, has a lot more ability and a lot of facets of the game but like the goal that Jota scored the other day is just exactly what I'm talking about where he's, mm. he's able to react to something that happens suddenly and score an easy goal in a way where Richarlison I feel would, would already be kind of lurching over the goalkeeper and would be wrong-footed by his own momentum. I see this with him so much. Is this uh, something which uh, can be trained into a player, or is it basically no? He, this guy, <laughs> this guy can't do it. You're just going to have to get someone who, who understands this instinctively. Yeah, I, I, mean, I fear it might be too late for him. He's sort of the the opposite of Özil, right? That, that uh, he he almost works too hard. Everything in his game is about energy. Yeah. And you look at his. I mean, it hasn't wasn't really true last season at Tottenham. But but when he was at Everton, um, his defensive stats were incredible. I, th- I think he was defensively the best forward in in the league that that last season at Everton. Uh, that he does work incredibly hard, and, and which sort of doesn't quite go with the the sort of stroppiness of his personality. But he, you know, he he is constantly moving. He is constantly closing people down. And so I think he probably is better in those wider roles where he's you know, he can go up against the fullback, he can track the fullback, he can annoy the fullback, and he's got the skill to beat the fullback. But as you say, I don't think he quite has that that sort of cold clarity of uh, of understanding to to to, to be in the the, the 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 place where the chance is going to drop. Um, so I think Tottenham are very obviously short at centre forward, um, and and you then got that slight problem that he replicates almost exactly what Son does on the left. So then do you play him on the right? But Kulisevsky's, you know, pretty good in that role as well. So in, in some ways it's good to have a depth, but but if he wants to play every week, and I, I presume he does, I I, it, I, I don't really see where he, where he fits in the front three there. I, I mean, at the minute he, he fits by, by being the awkward centre forward, but I don't really think that's a long-term a long-term solution. What, um, what did you think about United? Because I know there's been kind of a big reaction to their... Uh, first couple of performances, obviously they beat Wolves, but they didn't play well, and they 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 look to me almost surprised. The season has started, like they're they're kind of still in a pre-season phase, and they're sort of oh, not really ready for this. At the same time, um, you know, the game could have gone pretty differently if they hadn't had two massive misses by Rashford and 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 then Bruno Fernandez, and also this penalty, which is just a mad decision. You know, another crazy decision. I mean, that was. That was as penalty uh, as as penalty a penalty as it's possible to penalty, surely. Do you think? Um... <laughs> well, I, you know, I, on the basis that like no one no one really likes these kind of stupid penalties. I mean, the ball is like blasted into the hand of Romero from like not very far away, and often that wouldn't have been a penalty before. But now, like with VAR, it's like his hand is up. It's like it's a goal bound shot. Like. It's a penalty. Like, I, it just amazes me that they that they don't give that. I mean, well, uh, you know, it is. It's it's a detail ultimately. I suppose. We, well, first of all, you should you you honestly. How, how could you justify that not being a penalty based on all the penalties well, no, that are happening? I, I, I'm in the position where I think that shouldn't be a penalty. I also expected it to be given. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's pretty much that, that's pretty much what I think about it. But am I? Yeah, I, I my point was. I mean, look, it's. I, I don't understand what that law is. It changes every season and it changes from competition to competition. I hope that the Premier League have taken much more of a of a general view that uh, if a player is not intending to cheat, then let it go. That that seems to be the way the law should be. You should try and enforce it. And if, you, if you're also lunging to block a shot from three or four feet away and your arms go up to balance you and the ball hits it, 
but then there was you know there was the one at um uh was it Lewis Dunk at Brighton uh last week where it which, hit, yeah, I, hit the, I mean that was it, totally it hit, like, the back arm and uh, yeah I mean I, I I think both of them shouldn't be penalties and I don't understand how one can be given one one isn't but but um for yeah. me the Romero the, one was more of a penalty I mean, he's blocking a goal bound. He's blocking a goal bound shot with his hand out. Yes, like. yeah, yeah. But I, I still think to focus on that, as Bruno Fernandes did, is a, it's a, you know, it's to ignore the real problem. Okay. Uh, and you're right. United could have scored two or three goals in that first half hour. I mean, they, they seemed they must have had half a dozen chances over the game, where players who may or may not have been offside headed over from sort of eight, ten yards out. Hmm. Um, and and I, I sort of. The thing I was looking for, uh, having seen how they struggle against Wolves, was how are they going to close down that midfield? How, how are they not going to be as open as they had been to uh, those Matthias Cunha runs? And the first half hour, they, they didn't concede anything like that. And you sort of thought, oh, okay, they've, they've sorted this out. It's, it's a bit easier because they're playing away from home. They can play a bit deeper. They, they, they're not as on the front foot. They're not opening themselves up as much. And then suddenly Madison just surged through exactly the same as Mateus Cunha. Well, there, there was and now, one moment when Madison, in front of his own penalty area, ran around three United players. You, 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 do you know the moments I'm talking about? Like he, he just James Madison is not like is not Gareth Bale. You know, <laughs> well, yeah, not not a player I necessarily associate with this. And he just kind of scuttled around these three players and was breaking into space. So I thought, my God, that's that is not promising. But I, I think it was the the the, the Saar chance uh, when he sort of ended up sort of jabbing the shot and an honest over his chest. I think that was the first time that somebody just run through that. I mean, as soon as that happened, United's heads went. It, it was almost immediately they 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 changed. They became anxious. They weren't as good in possession. They didn't look as in control. Uh, there's then the the, you know, the the woodwork hit twice in, in the twenty seconds, fifteen seconds, whatever that, that we've already mentioned. And then you sort of thought, well, half time they'll, they'll, they'll sort that out, and they didn't. And, and what was what was worse was uh, if you look at the first goal, Saron's forty yards. Nobody tracks him to, to get on the end of that deflected cross. Uh, you look at the second goal, and you have only one nil down, and you've got Varane and Eriksson sort of dawdling back, and there's no urgency at all. And you suddenly think you've got Perisic in a great play, position on the left. Why are you not trying to get back in the box? Why are you not trying to close this down? The game's not over. Um, and then it was over. So there was that weird sort of lassitude. And you know, Ten Hag afterwards was really prickly about this idea that, that they'd been dominated in midfield. And he kept saying, oh, you know, I thought we stopped the counters very well. And he's sort of thinking, but there was absolutely no life in United the last sort of 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Mm. You know, the, 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 at 90 minutes, the board went up with nine minutes of injury time, which I know is sort of standard these days. But you sort of think, Manchester United with nine minutes of injury time at Tottenham, and nothing happened. The last nine minutes, it was just sort of some nice time to sort of polish my report. Didn't have to add anything else in. There's no no kind of worries. I was going to have to do a bit of a rewrite. Nothing happened in that nine minutes, and you're sort of thinking, well, that's not Tottenham, and it, it's certainly not not Manchester United. Mark, um, I uh, was receiving texts from friends of mine who support Manchester United during the game, and they were saying things like. Is Mason Mount still playing? And uh, I hate Mason Mount was another one. Now, uh, I've, I see this th these types of sentiments being reflected quite a lot uh, if I look at the internet, uh, which strikes me as a little strange given that here's a, uh, a new player who's just arrived for a big fee and, you know, he's, a, he's an England player, he's a Champions League winner. Um, and yet there seems to be a, a bit of a sense already that 
he's not fitting in. I mean, what, what's your impression about this? One, one thing that I, I see people saying is, hang on a second, why have we signed this guy when the team is essentially built about, around Bruno Fernandes and this guy is like a less good version of him and they can't play together? You know, where do you think, um, where do you think Mason Mount is at two games into his Manchester United career? Two games, two games. It's mad because I think last time that we were on, I was on this podcast after the FA Cup final, just when the Mount thing was really gathering pace. Um, and you could almost see this coming, right? I think he's always been a player who has been appreciated more so from his managers and coaches and people that work with him and teammates even than more widely. Um, and he's always covering England as well. There was always a question of where exactly he fits in. Nobody's quite sure of his, his position. Look, I think Ten Hag's idea of what he wants from him is to be that guy that's alongside Bruno who is linking the back of the midfield with the front of it, moving the ball through the middle of the park. Um, it's not necessarily something he's always done. It's not some a position he's always played. I think probably his best stuff came to part of the front three with uh, under Tuchel um, when Chelsea won the Champions League. Um, but that's that's his role in this team. I think it's one that is it's a weird one because you, you see a lot of uh, top sides in the Premier League now as well playing with two central midfielders if you like who are very you would typically think of them as number 10s you know Liverpool are doing the same uh, Arsenal have habits in that role um, and it's that it's almost that that second guy um, you know if you think about it number 10s you think of them getting on the ball and it's exactly what you say there with Bruno but if you've got two number 10s you know you don't have two balls you can't have both of them can't can't be on it and doing everything all the time so this role that mounts in and that is also been taken up at other clubs is one that um, perhaps I don't know whether it, it, it the understanding of it perhaps in generally isn't it isn't particularly well understood. I think it's something in a system that will take time to to get to know. But um, look, I I to be honest, like I watched um, I watched the Wolves game back because <laughs> my flight got cancelled to Athens to cover the Super Cup last week, and I was sat in an ibis at Luton Airport with nothing to do. So I watched I, I watched the Wolves game back, and I came away from that. You know what Jonathan said there about, and it was a thing afterwards. Everyone was saying Mount and Fernandez were far too advanced, and and Casemiro was being overwhelmed, and yeah, to an extent. And we all saw those Wolves counter attacks through the middle of the pitch, just as we saw Tottenham do it several times as well at the weekend. One thing I would say is that Casemiro as well was so advanced at times, like in the final third. And that's where a lot of those, especially those Wolves attacks that I watched back were coming from because he was dangerously out of position. And I think like there is a conversation coming as well about, you know, as much of an impact that he made last year, the age that he was signed at, the price that he was signed at, um, the way that he fits into this team in possession, I think Casemiro. He's such a he's a player who's always looking to play on the front foot. You would you wouldn't necessarily associate him with that, but watch some of the passes that he makes. He's always looking to play quick, and I think that is a bit of a directive that Ten Hag's given this season. He said uh, repeatedly, actually during during preseason, that he wants United to be almost like the best transition team in the world, the best counter attacking team in the world. And you stop and you're like. Isn't this exactly what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer wanted as well? Isn't, isn't yeah, this, this isn't what this this isn't what Ajax were were famous for when he was, um, you know, when when he they were doing well with him as coach. Yeah, yeah, and like again, watching that Wolves game, it was just the even when they went one 0 up, and you know they've been absolutely bailed out. Just how quickly they were playing, 
Um, and how, you know, obviously I watched City as well at the same time and you couldn't have two polar opposite teams where one looks to slow the play down, looks for control, looks to dictate the game. United just wanted to hit the opposition immediately. And I think that maybe, you know, having played Monday night into Saturday, maybe that plays and and it only being the early part of the season, maybe that plays into just how, um, what Jonathan's talking about there at the end, how... They they basically couldn't stomach it anymore. They don't they don't look physically prepared. They don't look physically fit enough to play that style of football for ninety minutes. And I don't think it's particularly wise to be trying to play that with with the players and the personnel that they've got at the minute because they just don't have any control or any. Uh, they they aren't able to set any tempo to the games. Yeah, I, I mean, Jonathan, just one the the thing that surprised me about it uh, at the beginning was oh he's gone with the same team. Uh, which, which just because how badly the last game had gone, I thought, no, sure, he's he's going to change this. That wasn't, as you've already kind of uh, outlined, it wasn't really the same type of failure, even though it was a worse, a much worse result. Um, but one player he didn't feature, uh, his name was mentioned sort of after the Wolves game, uh, someone who might have been able to to help with the situations was Scott McTominay, and United made five substitutions, and McTominay was sitting there uh, still at the end, not one of those five, uh, looking pretty angry on the bench. It's fairly clear that you know he's they they want him to leave, but this is kind of mad, isn't it? Like I just kind of feel there's no way Man United. Should be should be selling Scott McTominay for any football reason. Like he is exactly this type of player that Alex Ferguson would have had for like twelve years playing. You know, he would end up playing every position. You know, it would be like there's a good lad who I can rely on uh, whenever someone is injured, which is usually somebody is injured. You know, and would end up having a good career at United. Now it seems that for accounting reasons, a player like this is literally the player you're incentivized to sell. I think this is a terrible situation for football. Yeah, yeah, modern football is no no country for John O'Shea. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean you're right. You know, you can easily see him playing 15, 20 games a season just filling in, you know, Back in midfield, you're a bit tired, so you stick him in there. You stick him in at left back, stick him in at right back. He can probably you know, do a job at centre back if you really need him to. Um, I, don't, I don't know. It was it was a particularly Ferguson way of doing things. I think wasn't it? It's it sort of. I'm not sure many other certainly by 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 the '90s onwards were many other teams using players like that. I mean, yeah, you, know, you go back. I, I mean, I'm thinking life. of guys like obviously you mentioned O'Shea, but but even you know Park. Um, Saucier to some extent, you know, you know what I mean. Like people who are kind of happy to be at the club. I don't want to say happy to be at the club because it sounds patronising. But like, I think McTominay would accept being a squad player in a yeah. way that maybe some people don't. And like, there is a place for, for guys like that. But they're gonna they're gonna just get rid of this guy. Well, who is, it's, it's who is also, it's, it's a, who, who, I mean, yeah, you, know, you think back and, you, and obviously something like John O'Hare at Nottingham Forest or, or Alan Harper at, at Everton. Yeah, you think back in the seventies and eighties, nineties, the, these players existed. Uh, Richard Ord at Sunderland. Um, does that kind of player exist anywhere else in the last sort of twenty years? Uh, I'm sure there are odd examples, but it sort of feels Mil- like something. Miller, that's, um, Miller, Miller okay, yeah, well. yeah, yeah, fair enough, yeah, yeah, that's that's true. Um, but it does feel that we're moving towards an era of greater specialisation. Uh, paradoxically, as sort of football becomes more universalised. The roles are going to become more specialised. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if that's a United thing or if it's if, if it's wider. But it, it does mean players like McTominay. You sort of feel 
he, he might be somebody who never quite finds the right level. I mean, I guess he could go to somewhere like West Ham and be, you know, play 30 games a season and be very, very good there and become sort of a... I mean, I a think he's a pretty decent player. You know, when you look at what he's been doing for Scotland as well, he's, yeah, he's yeah, kind true. of... He's, yeah. he's shown some stuff which they haven't seen that often at Manchester United. But, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just it's, these rules... I mean, we, we started this chat, which we are going to, don't worry, we are going to bring to an end uh, quite soon. But we started you know, talking about the sort of financial fair play rules and just the way that it seems like you're incentivized now to sell the player who who should be kind of their, you know, a lifer is like yeah. the, is the first well, yeah, out of the I mean, door. The, you know, the, the, the old logic was you, your academy developed players because they understood the DNA of a club and they sort of had some affiliation to the club, an emotional bond. That maybe they were institutionalized. You could you could pay them less than they were worth, and they'd take yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and you could drop them for big games, and they wouldn't kick up too much of a fuss. And it was abuse, uh, really. It was abuse, but, <laughs> but it was the system. And, and, and now they 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 are they cash cows. They're just the people you sell, and that's one of the problems Chelsea Chelsea have got right. That, that um, you know one of the achievements of later era Abramovich was that academy started producing players. You had Mason Mount, you had Tammy Abraham, you had Pekai Tamori, you had Hudson Adoy. Uh, there's another one I've uh, forgotten. There's five of them, aren't there? Billy, um, Billy Gilmore, who's um, ripping it up well, at Brighton. Gilmore, actually, yeah. I, I meant Reese James, who, who is still there. Reese James, of course, yeah. Um, but apart from Reese James, they've all moved out. Billy Gilmore thought it was excellent for Brighton on Saturday. It's not that he's a bad player. Um, and and you, you wonder whether players coming from the outside, young players will be coming outside, um, might find it easier to settle if they had people who were institutionalised who could explain the institution to them rather than, you know, like being the first day of term in Freshers' Week when you're sort of like, sorry, who, who are you again? What, 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 what subject is in? You know, it's, it's the, 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 the level of flux they've created at Chelsea, I, I think, is is not healthy. But it's also, what did, what did Chelsea do next? You know, it's, it's all very well to say, right, we'll, we'll sell off yeah, Mason Mount, we get the, what was it, 55, 60 million that fee? Yeah. And that's all profit. Yeah, but Mason Mount's gone now. You can't do that again. Um, so I don't know if you've seen uh, Swiss Ramble's got a post on the Substack today where he goes through uh, Chelsea's FFP. And, and basically, you know, it's very calm, it's very measured. And he suddenly gets the figures at the end. That's quite a big crisis coming up at Chelsea, unless something dramatically changes, particularly if they, they don't get into Europe. So yeah, the, 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 the Scott McTominay problem that's destroying destroying clubs. Yeah, well, I didn't expect it to end there, but that's where we've that's where we've ended it. Uh, Scott McTominay, John Wilson, uh, Mark Ritchie, thanks a million for chatting to us about all that today. Cheers, thanks. Uh, Owen, I like you and I like your style. The second captain, we've got that bit better quality. It's confident any place, anywhere, all over the world. Full of protein. It's information, fluid information. I don't know what you're talking about. You can do it while you're cleaning the house, brushing your teeth, taking a bath. Trying to be critical is going to be impossible. It is a football podcast in the 2022-23 season, so why not finish with another referee decision? 23-24 season, we're, in, we're into 23-24. Right, I'll accept that correction, yeah. that's a very fair correction. Didn't interrupt my flow yeah, no and worries. was vital no to, worries. yeah, exactly, the correct... Absolutely. <laughs> the correct procedure <laughs> being followed. So, this season, 2023-24, so this decision I wanted to ask you about was Alexis McAllister. It's interesting in the context even of what Wilson was saying there about the Romero one and the FA should... If, the player isn't trying to cheat, should maybe give him the benefit of the doubt. What do you reckon about the McAllister red card in the Liverpool game? Oh, well, I thought it was a terrible decision. Um, 
you know, it's but uh, but I'm I would not be very optimistic about his chance of of having the card rescinded, which I'm sure they're going to ask for, um, because it seems like I mean, Klopp after the game uh, said, you know, the punishment that we were without him for forty minutes uh, feels to me like it should be enough. Now, I mean, he would say that because in his next two games are Newcastle and Aston Villa. I mean, these are two of the obviously um, stronger teams in the league that they've got to play Wolves. So he's going to miss those three matches as it stands, which is nuts because he was never trying to... Um, he, first of all, they've, they've sent him off for something he basically he didn't do. Like, I mean, they've, it's, it's as though uh, this is supposed to be a kind of a studs-up, a high lunge, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, that's a red card and, and you're gone, son. But that, but that's not what he was doing. You know, you could see, actually, when you when you see the 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 footage, first of all, he has to run around the referee. <laughs> the referee is actually in his way. He runs around him and then is kind of stretching his leg out a little bit because his left foot comes in from the side. Uh, now they do collide uh, himself on the uh, board. I forget which Bournemouth player is injured, but he's clearly not leading with the studs or kind of th- with this type of a, of a challenge. I mean, there are worse challenges literally in ah, the he is leading City. With the studs. So, so let, let, it, let it flow is what you're saying, Ken? Let it flow? No, I'm saying see what, like react to what's actually happened. Don't, don't react to what you think happened. You know, that's, that's a, a case of a player who's, who's trying to d- make a block tackle with the side of his foot, um, who mistimes it slightly. And it's, he does uh, end up going in with the know, studs. Though he does go, end up going with the studs. I know a lot of people. Oh, are I, he watching it. I, I think it's the side. I think it's the side of his uh, of his foot. It's not. It's not really the studs. Watching it with uh, on, we were doing the game on Premier Sports, and it was funny because it happened. I didn't think anything of it. Nobody in the crowd. There was no baying for a red card. Well, it was a whole match with Liverpool anyway, so it wouldn't be that much baying. Mm. But it wasn't. It didn't look at first glance like this is a red card tackle. And, uh, you know, I think he, yeah. that's what Klopp said afterwards. Like, if it had been a yellow card, nobody would have said anything about it. Or you, would, you would have just moved on. Damien Delaney in studio did think, he was like, oh, hang on a second. As, as soon as it happened, he thought there might be a problem. And lo and behold, there was a red card there. So it was kind of just, just interesting to see that. Now, at the same time, after a few replays, even Damien was like, yeah... I mean, it's not, it's not the worst tackle you've ever seen, but I suppose if you're putting yourself in that position, if you're if you're mistiming any tackle now, uh, and you have mm. stood showing, you regardless of the the force is one thing. If there's excessive force, that's a red card. But you can also be endangering an opponent, which you could argue he was doing. Yeah, well, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, you're saying this. Um, you're you're saying if you're if you're put, if you're putting that tackle in, then you're 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 taking the risk. Basically, you're giving the referee a. Um, a decision to make, but there was worse uh, challenges. For example, Bruno Fernandez, which Tottenham player, Poro, I think it was, um, had an actual studs up challenge on Bruno Fernandez in the game in the next game, which was nothing. You know, it was. It, I don't, it wasn't. Was it a yellow card? I don't think it was a yellow. No, certainly um, in the in the let it flow era, it it, it 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 was strange to see this one as a red. Well, it, it, it's the sort of unfairness of like random, you know, when, when you can watch like a, a football on, on a one day, then you see a player sent off red card, three match suspension, three match suspension is the, is the real thing, is, is the real thing here. I mean, it's, you know, he's going to miss huge games. It's a massive, it's, it's just like um, Darwin Nunez last season. Although Nunez, um, with Nunez, I think he was kind of banged to rights, like he cannot do what he did. 
But in this case, I feel like it's a, it's a very unfair punishment for something that the referee gets wrong. You know, it's more his mistake than um, than McAllister's. And then you watch uh, the game between Manchester United and Newcastle, and there's a worse challenge, uh, which the VAR doesn't do anything about. And then there's uh, there were similar episodes in the uh, Newcastle-Manchester City game, again, later on the same day. And you're thinking, well, you know, so it's the kind of unfairness or the randomness of the punishments. I mean, I saw... Um, what, you know, here's here's the symptom of it, right? The, the kind of, I think, morbid symptom. David Maddock, who is a, uh, you know, a long-serving uh, football journalist covering um, Liverpool, well, he's the Daily Mirror Northern football correspondent, um, was at this game, uh, tweeting during the game. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm assuming he was at the game. Uh, he He's tweeting about the game. Um, he says, honestly, the game's gone. How can that be a red card from McAllister? And how the hell is an up and over turn by VAR? Clearly gone for ball contacts foot to foot because that's the height the ball was. Truly ridiculous decision. He then says, no prizes for guessing who the VAR and his assistant are. It's only Paul Tierney and Constantine Hatsidakis. Jesus Christ, could this pair be more obvious? The Premier League now really needs to take a serious look at what's going on with their officials. So could they could this pair be any more obvious i mean it sounds as though he's kind of uh i mean i don't i don't know i suppose he'd have to he'd have to explain that but it it sounds as though he's casting some aspersions here on the impartiality of the officials so here's a here's another tweet that he then sent uh, in my uh, brackets cops looks down close brackets 30 odd years as a journal covering football i can honestly say i've never seen a worse red card decision than that travesty for McAllister here it's almost shameful from the officials and starts to call into question neutrality, given the history. So the point here is that this is a, this is a very experienced football journalist who is calling the integrity of the officials into question, right? It's not yeah, just it's not saying, fan, oh, I want to cook up just, by the ref. Yeah. It's not a fan. It's not some, some Twitter account going, going nuts saying, oh, it's corrupt, blah, blah, blah. The, you know, the, that's, you've, got to, you've got to the level where someone who is very experienced, who knows what he's saying, who knows the kind of gravity of what he's saying and is saying it anyway. That's the situation we're now in, where, you know, I mean, I'm afraid people are going to be looking at this and going, well, how, how else are you supposed to make sense of this? Here's a similar incident. Here's a similar incident. Here's a, this one's a red. This one's nothing. This one's a booking. This one's a don't do it again, son. What's the pattern here? You know what I mean? And people will always see the patterns against their own team. I mean, Tierney, for example, is is a hate figure among Liverpool fans, not least because Jurgen Klopp, <laughs> Jurgen Klopp himself, has has like directly attacked Tierney, you know, and, is, and has this like obvious history with him, which always leaves out, and, and, and you know, you can see, oh, Tierney, he's refereed all these games and these are the decisions he's made. It always leaves out the fact that Tierney was also the ref when Diogo Jota nearly took the head off Oliver Skip in the Spurs, in the Liverpool Spurs game last year, if you remember that, um, a, a, a really clear red card in my opinion. Nothing done by Tierney. Jota scored the winning goal in a four-three in injury time. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so that was a consequential consequential decision in their favour. The common factor, to my mind, is just incompetence. You know, just get just consistently getting things wrong rather than trying to massage things in a certain direction. But like, you know, I've got to sort of. I've got, you know, it's, it can be difficult to, to, to sort of keep that, uh, first of, uh, keep that front of, of your mind and not sort of get sidetracked into this. Hang on a second. Like how many times, how many times is this guy going to, you know, so I think this is the, this is the consequence. Look, oh, I've, I've ended by making another speech about fire. I, you know, it's, people have heard this before. It's time for me to stop. Thanks, Ken. 
Thank you, Aaron. Thanks so much for listening. You get more Premier League coverage, possibly even more of our coverage during the week on secondcaptains.com. If you sign up to the World Service, you'll hear all episodes without any ads. The Second Captains podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. The second captain's world service. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's to persuade the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 